I'm pleased to be here. Here are the echoes. Um, and what I want to do tonight is actually to um, give a talk based on one of my favorite poems. And it's a bit of an indulgence, but I, I want to um, talk about a poem that has been very important to me in my own learning and evolution and to use the poem as a way of exploring a number of concerns and issues about our approach to spirituality, about our, our sense of practice, about our sense of um, learning and waking up. And so uh, what I'd like to do is first to read the poem, and I actually have some copies for you, which I made. Um, and... But what I'd like to do first is just let you hear the poem uh, read out loud, which I think is how poetry is meant to be heard. I don't think poetry is usually meant to be read, at least in the origins. And this is this is a poem by Mary Oliver. And some of you may know this poem. How many people know Mary Oliver's work? And this this is a poem called The Journey. The Journey, Mary Oliver. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Oliver. Um, I'll read it again. This is what my my 12th grade English teacher always used to say, you need to hear poems at least twice, and we did. (laughs) So this um, this is the journey once more. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, As you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode 
deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So what I'd like to do is actually to uh, give out some copies, and then I'd like to go through the poem and uh, explore some of the themes, because for me it's, a, it's been a very... Uh, give a few... Let this go in a few directions. So everyone has one. Thanks. Thank you. So first I'd like to talk a little bit about the idea of the journey. Uh, Because in many ways, we can think of our own spiritual practice, we can think of our own lives as a journey, and it's a very powerful metaphor that's uh, used in many traditions. You know, in many traditions, we also talk about the spiritual path. We talk about walking along a certain path, which is a kind of journey. And the the idea of a journey is, um, I think, very, very rich. We, When we're on a, a spiritual journey, Um, often we have a sense of the direction we're going in, but sometimes we don't. And sometimes we're on a journey and we don't exactly know where we're going. What marks a journey often is that we've left the old behind in the sense we've left our, our, our home behind. We've left, you know, we might say we've left our habits behind. We go off, um, and are somewhat open to the unknown. It's one of the, powers, uh, you know, of travel, that when we travel, things are a little mysterious. We don't know who we'll meet. We don't know what we'll find. Sometimes it can be dangerous. Sometimes it can be wonderful. Sometimes it can be very mysterious. And sometimes it can be probably all of those, right? Mysterious, wonderful, dangerous, exciting, scary, and so forth. And there's, but there's, there's a way that we open ourselves to new qualities, that we open ourselves to discover things about ourselves when we meet people. And we also sometimes um, find a, a kind of openness. You know, when you travel, I've always marveled how sometimes in travel one can meet people, you know, and have the most incredibly intimate discussions with them that you'd never have at home with anyone you meet on the street, right? And there's some, so there's something that's uh, very uh, exhilarating about a journey. Now, what's interesting about this journey is that it begins in one's own house. And in the journey, we move out of the house. And I want to talk about these voices, the, the bad advice, the old tug. We might, we might say that this is about the old habits that we have, that there's a way in which when we're on a spiritual journey, one of the first things we do 
is that we see what our habits are. We see what keeps us a little bit stuck. In terms of the the poem, we uh, hear the bad advice. What's the bad advice saying? It's basically staying, saying, "Stay in the house." Right in the in in this poem, the person goes out of the house. We might say that the bad advice is about keep your old habits. Listen to me like you've always listened to me all your life. You know, sometimes I think that what we do when we do meditation practice is we immerse ourselves in bad advice. <laughs> That's not what's advertised on the flyers. <laughs> but there's, there's a way in which, what do we do when we sit? We listen to our own minds over and over again. And what do we listen to? We listen to our habits. And how much of our habits is basically, we might say, bad advice. And it essentially divides into the bad advice, bad advice divides into two categories. Our own bad advice and the bad advice of others. <laughs> so, this is what we do. This is, this is what the poem says is sort of the starting point of our practice. We sit, we sit very innocently for half an hour. And what do we listen to? Well, I'm exaggerating a little bit, of course, but there's, we listen to the bad advice. We listen to the tug. And what, basically, what's the bad advice telling us? Don't change. Stay as you are. You know, listen to me. I'm your mother, <laughs> or whatever. Or I don't know. A lot of, a lot of mothers, I'm sure, give very good advice. But a lot of, um, you know, a lot of what we hear is sort of urging us to stay safe. And there's something about going on this journey, which is about um, getting to know our habits well, and learning to see them, and then go beyond them. So in the poem, it says. The voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. And the, again, the bad, bad advice is basically saying, listen to me, act like me, do what I say, stay the same, don't change, you'll be happy, promise. <laughs> right? And, and that you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. And, and so, so this, is a, this is a poem about how we break through or break free of that bad advice, or we break through of those voices. And I was uh, reflecting and looking at the poem. There was a period about four years ago when I had been really uh, working really hard for about nine years, and I was um, I, I'm, I teach at this school in San Francisco called the Saybrook Graduate School, which used to be the Institute for Humanistic Psychology. And at one point, I was chair of the whole faculty which I used to go around talking about saying, my job is I'm chair of the whole goddamn faculty. <laughs> I don't know if Buddhists are supposed to talk like this. but um, And I had also been uh, working a lot with Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I was kind of doing too much, and I felt like something was uh, drying up a little bit, like I wasn't really tapping my deeper passions and gifts. And... I decided to take about a year in which I would um, leave the school. And I wasn't sure what would happen after that, but I 
essentially dropped almost everything I was doing. It was nice to have that freedom, of course. Not everyone does. But I dropped most of my teaching, and I dropped the work with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and I, I was also uh, co-editing a journal called Revision, which some of you may have seen, and I dropped that. And all these people told me that my actions were going to make things difficult for them. It was the mend my life voice, right? I was told at the journal that I was, I was taking, I had been taking the role for about five years of being the coordinator of five editors. And the managing editor told me, if you stop doing this job, the journal will suffer. My people at the school said, if you leave the school, there are going to be a lot of bad things that happen if you're not there. Don't leave. I probably had some comments from my parents as well. And probably from friends that were essentially doing some version of mend my life. You know, be careful. How are you going to make any money? Look out. Shouldn't you just stay with what you're doing? It's going pretty well. And it took, you know, it took a certain amount of clarity, you know, because when people say, mend my life, well, they're giving me a certain amount of power and they're saying, you're doing good work and I'll suffer because of you <laughs> or something like that. So there, there are these voices. What were, the poem is really about how do you come to your own voice? How do you come to your own life and, in which you tap your passions, your gifts, your deeper sense of yourself? That's what the poem is about. And when we, when we go in that direction, we find there are a lot of voices. There are a lot of voices that make it sometimes very hard to know what to do. Very hard to know how to find ourselves. And it's one of the reasons that we sit in meditation. Because when we sit, the voices aren't quite as loud as sometimes they are when we're just face-to-face in discussion. And we can start to sort out these voices. We can start to sort out, oh, do I really need to listen to that voice how much do I really believe in that, in this or that voice? How much do I follow it? How much do I echo myself, those other voices? How much have I inter- excuse me, internalized one of the voices? And so this uh, beginning of the poem is really telling us that we need to look at those voices. We need to look at the voices that tell us how to act, how to live, how to be, what to do. And then it says, you knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, you knew what you had to do. And I think that this is really about being in touch with something that really moves us. It's being in touch with our our deeper truth, something in ourselves that we really trust. And we we gradually... Um, touch that when we practice, you know. And of course, we touch it in other sorts of ways. We touch that with our friends. We touch that uh, maybe in nature. We touch that when we find ourselves in the activities that that uh, resonate with our sense of aliveness and resonate with our sense of um, 
um, vision and human possibility and so forth. And so there's something about the beginning of our practice that demands that sense of knowing what to do. I think none of us would even be here unless there was some inner voice that was saying, there's something to look at, or I want my life to be a life of integrity, you know, or um, I want to live my life around the development of wisdom and compassion. Or it might be, I want to find out what that moment was like when I was up in the mountains and I felt the unity with the universe. You know, what was that about? I want to know about that and uh, have that guide my life, even though it was one moment. And I had thousands of other moments of bad advice. I want to listen to that voice when I felt the unity. Or I want to listen to the voice when I felt love. And when I felt love, fill my whole being, fill my whole body my whole consciousness. And so this is in many ways the beginning of our practice and it gets it keeps on getting reinforced as we practice more, we have a sense that uh, our motivation more and more gets deepened and we have in a way we get more and more as it were into ourselves or into our depths and we, have less trouble maybe with those voices. We have some vision. You know, I remember when I did my first long retreat, which was quite a while ago, and I was in my uh, mid-twenties, and I felt a kind of homecoming. I felt, ah, I've been in different places, but this is what I need to do. This tells me something very deep about my intentions with my life. You know, And so I think we each uh, are, I think, urged by Mary Oliver, by the poem, that the journey really starts to gain um, clarity when we're in touch with that sense of I knew what I needed to do, I know what I need to do. And yet the poem goes on. It says, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. So... What's, what's interesting to me about this is the quality that, um, in a way, we start waking up midway through our life. It might be literally at mid-age, or it might be, it's certainly for most of us, it's after we've lived quite a lot, you know, minimally 15, 20, 25 years. And there's a sense that we... Um, as Mary Oliver says, it was already late enough. We start waking up and we already have a history. We already have some suffering. We already have a certain amount of baggage. Um, We wake up and we may feel, oh my gosh, how can I live a spiritual life? I'm so flawed. Has anyone had that thought? (laughs) I'm so flawed. Why couldn't I have just had the perfect parents and the perfect spiritual education so that, you know, I had meditation training at age five and then I had all the right, the right school and instead look what I had. Oh my God, I can't even think about junior high, you know, or, you know, oh my gosh, adolescence. Oh my gosh. 
you know, adolescence is always cited as the reason to um, do spiritual practice fully so you don't get reborn and have to go through adolescence again <laughs> within the Buddhist context. Um, but we have, we have these, um, you know, we, have, we, we wake up in a way late. And I was even thinking the Dalai Lama said, the Dalai Lama once said, you know, Dalai Lama is someone who had the perfect training, right? You know? Supposedly, you know, it was recognized as a Dalai Lama at age two or three, had the greatest meditation masters of Tibet were his teachers at age five, you know. But you look at Dalai Lama and he said he had some problems too. He came from a part of Tibet where everyone was supposed to be irritable. <laughs> and he actually said until he was 20, he was mostly irritable most of the time. <laughs> and he said it wasn't until he was 35 that he really appreciated spiritual practice in a deep way. You know, it took him a while, and, you know, so he had, in some ways, better circumstances than us, you might say, or maybe not. Who can, who can say? But there's, there's a way in which we all wake up light, and it reminded me of this um, passage, some of you know, uh, the work of Dante, you know, the, the, the Divine Comedy, and you may remember if you ever if you read that. I read the, I read it in college, and some of you may remember it. And it, it actually begins with Dante saying, "I was in midlife and I woke up in a thicket," you know, which is a kind of a metaphor for saying, at a certain point in my life, I, I realized I was confused and that maybe I could wake up a little bit more, <laughs> right? And that's that's what we do. And I, I actually found the exact quotation with which uh, Dante begins. He says. In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. Get that sense? Where the straight way was lost. How hard a thing is it to tell of that wood, savage and harsh and dense, the thought of which renews my fear. And so he he goes on to say that, that this was when he really began his spiritual journey. It was dark. He was um, in the middle of his life. And he started. And so I think that that's really, um, it's important to remember that that's the way mo- it happens for most of us. I mean, I know for myself, there is a way in which um, I sometimes criticize myself for not having woken up more earlier. Has anyone ever had that experience? And one of my teachers, Sylvia Borstein, says, that there's something really peculiar about this waking up process, which is that as we wake up, we often criticize ourselves for how long we were asleep, which when you think about it is a little bit perverse. You know, <laughs> you know, that, you know, think about it. I mean, here you've woken up and all you can think about is how long you were asleep. Why? You should just, oh, wonderful. I'm awake. I see through that pattern. You know, I see what I've, I see that bad habit I've done a hundred times and now I see it clearly, but sometimes all we think about is, oh my gosh, you wasted so much time. You blew it spiritually. And then, you know, that can, of course, trigger other patterns in the mind and and heart. And so there is, I think that this is maybe this statement of, uh, it was already late enough in a wild night. It's really... uh, an invitation to be friendly towards ourselves and compassionate and know that we all are, I don't know if flawed is the word, but we have a history. We each have histories, you know, and we have some things which are difficult. We have ways we're stuck. Everyone does. Dalai Lama, 
has ways he's stuck. He says so. No problem. You know, everyone has it that way. So, um, so the poem goes on. Little by little, as you left the voice, their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own. And so this is really pointing to the way that part of this practice is to really uh, come into our own being, and you might say our own authenticity, if you want to use that language, our own um, our own sense of knowing what's true, really. It's really about that. It's our own sense of knowing what's true, embodying it, and and actually distinguishing our own deep voice. You might say it's what I am when I'm most myself. You know, and we distinguish it from the conditioning. We distinguish it from what we were told to be or told to do. That's the bad advice. And actually, some of the bad advice may be not all that bad. It may actually be helpful. But what we do in this practice is we come to um, we come to this very open sense of intelligence and compassion, which is not at all about accepting other people's views, about accepting secondhand views. It's about really seeing for ourselves knowing for ourselves. And there's something about that which is also about actualizing our own gifts, our own potential. Something very powerful here. And this, I think, is what uh, Mary Oliver's pointing to, the sense of finding our own voice. And it's the voice which we find as we've left the other voices behind. We've gone through this wild night, she says. It's not an easy process to find... It's not an easy process to be ourselves, is it? You know, it's it's hard, and you know there are actually I I can almost sense there are a lot of tears. There are a lot of tears in in becoming ourselves. There are a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of solitude. There's a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of um, confusion. But this is the process that we follow, and this practice is one very basic way of becoming ourselves. And there's a beautiful uh, poem. It was actually a part of a poem by the Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh. And he says in this part of the poem, I think this is more or less accurate. He says, don't talk to me about love. Just be yourself. Let me see. I think I have it here. Oh, why speak of the need to love one another? Just be yourself. You don't have to become anything else. So don't even worry about these great categories of love and wisdom, compassion, emptiness, you know, all the other Buddhist terminology. He's basically saying, just deeply, deeply, deeply be yourself. But that's much easier said than done, isn't it? That's partly why we're here. That's why we practice. We we, um, learn better how to do that. And again, we do it by really noticing all the all the stuff that's in our minds that we have to kind of work through. So Mary Oliver goes on to say, as you recognize that voice, you go deeper and deeper into the world. The voice keeps you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. And um, 
I love the the kind of the uh, irony of this. You know, she's talking about being yourself more and more, but it's like being yourself more and more takes you into the world. You know, you might think the opposite. Learn to be yourself more and more, and you're kind of, you know, just on your own, you're yourself. But she's saying there's something about being ourselves, finding your own voice, which actually permits you to be with others. That's one way to say it. That as we are more truly ourselves, more authentic, more knowing our own voice, we can be ourselves with others and we can actually be of use in the world. We can be of use to others. We can be helpful. And this really uh, calls to calls to mind the Buddhist image of the Bodhisattva. The, this very inspiring um, notion, the Bodhisattva, is literally would be translated as enlightenment being, but it's the being who's dedicated both to one's own awakening and the awakening of others. And so for me, this this last part of the poem is about the, the way that when we find ourselves, we find also find ways to be with others and we can actually be of use. And we go, we almost, uh, I mean, it's kind of the rhythm of meditation, isn't it? We withdraw somewhat, we sit, and we practice. And sometimes we have to do that for quite some time. Or, or, you know, I know personally for me, doing a number of long retreats has been completely, um, personally been very necessary. That there's a way that I withdraw, I find myself, I do the purifying work of separating out what's conditioning, what's the bad advice, and that, I, I learned to see that more. I learned to see the way that I've uh, developed certain self-images because of others, developed ways of being, that I come to see my own patterns of fear and confusion. And I get to know those really, really well. And sometimes that takes a certain amount of solitude. Sometimes that takes a certain amount of individual practice, meditation practice or whatever, work of um, therapeutic nature, with friends, you know, in intimate relationships. We do that kind of work sometimes a little bit separated from the world, but then it prepares us to go out and be full in the world. That's, I think, the vision that I think I think is held by the center, that we do this individual work, but it prepares us to really be in the world and to be of use and to bring that wisdom and compassion into the work we do, into the work in the world. So Mary Oliver ends by saying, as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could, could save. And again, I think there's a sense of um, paradox almost that as we save ourselves, we go deeper into the world and we actually can help save others, you might say. We can be of use. We, we see that balance between uh, finding our own life and then, and then being with others. But I sense that she's saying that we have to start with our own life, that in a sense, we have to save ourselves first, as it were. Buddhists don't use the language of saving. <laughs> they don't talk about saving ourselves. We talk about uh, waking up. And as, we, as we've woken up a little bit, then we can help others wake up. And we sort of, we, um, we could call this um, practice um, Waking up together practice.
I don't know what that would be in Pali or Sanskrit, but we could call this the, the waking up together hall. Because we, all, we, 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 we learn how to be alone, but we also learn how to be together. And we, we, as we uh, form more of a community, we also share with each other and we share what we've learned from our own experience. And we can really be of use to people. So I think I will just end by reading the poem one more time. And then we could have some, um, some discussion about anything that was uh, sparked. The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So thank you, thank Mary Oliver, thank the Buddha, and thank the Hall. So. This is yeah. nosy. Um, so so <laughs> you, uh, you, you kicked off all of these fetters, this extreme responsibility, and yeah. you decided to take off for a year? More or less, yeah. But how did that go? Very, very, very badly. No, <laughs> uh, no, no. I'm, no. Oh. <laughs> um, look at me. Uh, well, it was wonderful, actually, and you know, I, I would encourage people to. Um, Take time. I think in our culture we don't do that quite enough. We don't take enough breaks. And but I'll, uh, yeah, I, I let go of a lot of structure, and that was sometimes scary, you know, to have to have a lot of structure and suddenly let go of it. Um, so it was definitely sometimes difficult. Uh, my sense was that I needed to let go of things and let go of structure to let the deeper passions, as it were, come more to the surface. I had a sense of what those were, as it were, intellectually. But I needed to feel in my guts something deeper that was motivating me and that when I was so busy, it was hard to have that. Even if I kind of knew what it was and it was there at times, I wanted to have that be stronger. I wanted to have that... Uh, that uh, aspiration be stronger. And, I, and you might say I wanted to have my voice be stronger or, or know my own voice better. And uh, I, had, I did some things minimally. I, had, uh, I still had to do some teaching with my school. So I worked on an arrangement where I was only to be um, in contact with students the first five days of each month. <laughs> 
And I told my students, if you don't want this, find someone else. And yeah, and so I, I, I created boundaries. I had to do some work, and I was actually getting some money for doing that. So, but I created a very firm boundary, which is very important for this sort of thing. So I created a boundary. So I, and then also I probably was positive and said I had some contact with everyday life. It just was not so much. And I had about four months out of the year when I had no contact. I, cause I knew I wanted to do a long meditation retreat in, this started in September and I wanted to do a long meditation retreat in uh, February and March at Spirit Rock, which I did. And, and otherwise I did some, I tr- did some Teaching. I taught. I taught some some short retreats. I traveled to um, Tennessee. I think twice in that year, where I used to live in Kentucky, and I had contacts and friends in Kentucky and Tennessee. So I went. I went back there and did some teaching twice. I think, and I also um, went up to British Columbia on a trip and did some trainings and spent time. I have native friends up there, and I spent time with some of my friends up there for a while, but mostly I was around here. And um, uh, you know, those of you who, who haven't worked for a while know that it's amazing how busy you can be even if you don't have a job. Has anyone, anyone experienced that? It's surprising. I have a friend now who's um, not working, and she says she's busier than when she was working full-time. Um, but, but in any case, I, so I, I let structures go, and I, I tried to just sort of trust in the um, unfolding of my life. So I, it was actually to take some structure off and to be a little more playful, to take each day sort of freshly. What do I do for a while? And I had, of course, I had some responsibilities and, and uh, commitments. And then um, doing the, the... I actually did several retreats, including the long retreat, probably in the year, the 13 months or so that followed, that really were made up this time, I did about four months on retreat. So it was a lot of, a lot of time on retreat. And that, that opened up a lot of things. But I think I was very, I was fresh. And over the course of, and towards the end of the year, I really got clear in my guts that I was really called just to really shift my life away from the school, do more of this kind of work, both in my own life and in terms of teaching. And, and writing, and, and also to really have more passion for the connection of, of um, inner work and social change, which is one of my passions that I followed with Buddhist Peace Fellowship. So at the end, towards the spring of that year, I started, um, I started doing some teaching in that, in that area, and it really felt like something was really uh, coming more fully alive. So that's the short version. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. But it was, some of it was quite hard, you know. In, in that retreat, in the two-month retreat, I really came to grips with some of those old voices and certain number of demons, you know, and, and I, that were very, very interesting. And some, uh, I had a, one voice which, um, which, which I had to work with, which, which basically said, you shouldn't have been involved with the school for so long. You should have done meditation much more. You blew it spiritually. A harsh voice, you know. Can you imagine that voice? Have you ever told yourself that you sort of blew it from the point of view of your of your deeper values? Has anyone ever had that happen? No, one or two in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so during that retreat, I had to really work with some, and 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 
I, I worked a lot with John Travis, who was just wonderful with, with the um, question of sort of self-judgment. So a certain amount of self-judgments had to come up and be worked through before I could be more fully myself. That's some of the territory that we work through when we, when we I'm sure all of you know, or many, most of you know, we work through that territory of judging ourselves harshly or being confused or um, doubting ourselves. All these, uh, all these different um, energies that, that, that we have to grapple with. Yeah. Please, yeah. And say a little more. Of that term? Of what it is, but I don't know yeah. if you have like, what your definition is. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, in some traditions, there, it's actually understood as something that's external. That, you know, these external forces that just come to torment us. I think in this practice, we think, and I, I use the word demon very metaphorically to mean the main, um, the main patterns which keep me in bondage. You know, and which visit me regularly. <laughs> you know, and there's, um, yeah. So, so it's so my self-judgment could be a demon. My uh, my um, maybe my addiction could be a demon. It's the way you might say they're the bars on my cage, the main bars on my cage. And what this practice does is that it. Just by sitting with our own minds, and this is why this is really how the practice works. We sit there, and we actually give some space for the demons to present themselves. Because in daily life, sometimes we're so busy, the demons are kind of there, you know, gnawing on our ear or something, so to speak. But we don't get a chance to really be with them so fully. So that's something that does happen with this practice. And in fact, in some ways. When we just sit with ourselves, one of the things, I mean, we also get in touch with our beauty and our, our love and our compassion, but we do, we do uh, come more in contact with what's really difficult for us and what is um, sometimes uh, rather unconscious. You could say some, at first the demons are really unconscious patterns. You know, it's, uh, and we start to get a glimpse of them by the fact that we find ourselves suffering. And we may not know, here I am just walking down the street innocently and I have some interaction with someone and I find myself in a bad mood or, or suffering a lot for you know, um, a few hours or a day or two. And we, start to just, we just start to study that which brings us suffering. And sometimes that takes the form of very clear psychological patterns and some of them are kind of connected with our family, some of them are with the culture and so forth. Does that help some? Yeah. Please. Um, for if someone, were, if, if you were to advise someone uh, who's going on a meditation retreat yeah. for the first time, yeah. um, what kind of duration would you suggest, or what kind of thoughts do you have in that kind of area? Yeah. Um, have you done some uh, daily practice for a while? For for how long? About a year. About a year. Um, Off and on for and ha- years, 
for off and on for off and on for many years and have you have you studied a lot? Do you have a do you have a pretty good sense of what this is about? I think so. Yeah. Um, and how how is your how is your body in terms of when you sit? Is there a lot of pain or not too much or pretty comfortable. Pretty comfortable, okay. Um, I think I think um, you know, my own my own pattern was to do it somewhat gradually. I think, well, but I jumped in. I think I did. I did about um, a year when I first. Let's see. Well, I think I first started with um, an adult education class where someone taught me how to say "om." You know, om. <laughs> And um, I did that for for about a year, <laughs> mostly in you know in the woods or something. Um, but when I first, I think after I first got meditation instruction, I really got into it. And I started practicing a lot, and I think I started doing day long retreats. And I didn't do my first long retreat for a year, and then I did about a week. But I had done um, several times of a day long and and a few weekends in that year. So. If you want to go gradually, just do a lot of day longs. Uh, but it's, I, I would say you could actually, from what you told me, you could go and do a week without too much worry. But if you want to just get the flavor of it, do a day, do two days, and um, yeah, because you have you have a lot of the foundations present. So you could go into a week. You could actually probably do more without, if you wanted to. Please, yeah. Yeah. Here at Chikoshi. And I think the only thing I got out of it though was was well worth it and just the, the experience of being silent for a few days and never had any idea what that was gonna be like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's quite a shock. <laughs> yeah. I've been wanting to go commit myself for a week for the first time in the Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's yeah. There are challenges, but there, there's I mean, I most of the people I know, there's just so much uh, so much to learn and so much uh, that's extraordinary about that uh, the being silent and not ha- not to have to interact socially with people all the time. I mean, you don't have to when you walk towards someone, you don't have to say how are you doing. <laughs> a lot of people that's the that's incredible relief <laughs> you know and you get to, on retreats you can just walk towards people and say nothing and they and they don't think that you're you're weird or something so but it's uh yeah it's um it's wonderful to to do that exploration and i, I think uh I think there, there are great opportunities here to sort of choose your, your area. And the, the other thing to say is that in, in this tradition of insight meditation, uh, people who lead retreats and the general idea, it's very, very gentle and oriented towards your own needs. And there's, it's, if you want to have a bit of a drill sergeant mentality, you can go into Zen. But here it's a little bit, well, you know, you know want not, to not push you too hard. You can, although if you want to be pushed hard, you can ask for it.
Okay, please. I'm just curious. Um, I, I don't see in the context of the poem here any basis for this bodhisattva interpretation. Mm -hmm. In fact, it seems quite explicitly saying that you don't listen to the voices, that you don't say about it, mm -hmm. that you can only save one person, and that's yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, I was, um, first of all, I think that uh, the, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the emphasis of the poem is to see most, mostly others appear as bad advice, you might say. But I, I was mostly going with, there was that, something about that line near the end about that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. Right, but but you go into the world. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I admit that there's not a f really fully developed um, sense of what you do in the world, but that's that's what I was uh, that's that's what I was interpreting the sense of going deeper and deeper into because it, you know, it doesn't have to say that. It 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 could say it could mention nothing about the world, but there's something. And actually, I, well, maybe maybe you're right here. Maybe it's here that I'm making some leaps of interpretation. But I, because I, I, I did want to connect the way that finding one's own voice is so closely connected with actually going authentically into the world, which is certainly my own experience. And I think I wanted, we could ask Mary, I could send Mary Oliver a letter and ask her what she meant by that line. But, but what I was wanting to read in it, and I may have read too much, but what I was wanting to read was this experience that when you know yourself, that's when you really can know others. Yeah. What I'm kind of wondering is the way that, you know, the um, suitors often will use the phrase, you know, how hard it is to live a pure life. Yeah. When you're living in a homeowner. Household, yeah. Owner. Yeah. Go forth from the home life into homelessness. Yeah. And that sense of it being in the home, that symbol of the home, that oppressive thing that ties us down and makes us come yeah. to the clock. Is yeah. Really yeah. Yeah, it's le at least leaving the bad home. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you like the poem? It's 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 been important for me, you know. And actually, this was an important poem in that in that time that I was talking about, you know, because it really was about. Uh, it's a lot about coming to grips with all those voices, you know, and, and seeing them and distinguishing which are helpful and which are not. Um, this is the the book that it com comes from, uh, New and Selected Poems by Mary Oliver, and she's one. Some of you know her work, but she's a wonderful poet, and I guess won the. Uh, Pulitzer Prize, National Book Award, really um, lives on Cape Cod. Maybe time for one more, and should we, if we're going to end right at nine? Yeah, please. Yeah. 
Well, I, I love the notion, you know, this is what we work with with Buddhist Peace Fellowship. We work a lot with the notion that we do our own work and we do work with others simultaneously. And sometimes we need to do our own work to, um, for something to happen. But we can also, if, especially if we have a way of looking within and a way of noticing our own patterns, noticing where we get caught, where we get stuck, and noticing our wonderful qualities as well, that when we notice that, then we can actually start to do practice in an interactive way. You know, we can do that in our relationships. We can do that at work if other people have the same understanding. And so I know when we do, um, you know, when I was on the Buddhist Peace Fellowship Board, we would, we would um, have at the beginning of our meetings or sometimes particularly when we do three-day retreats together, which we did twice a year, we would have communication agreements that... Uh, gave us some guidelines for how to interact with each other. And one of the guidelines was that when we had conflicts developed, we wanted to work with them. And so when we've done our own work, there are much we can actually uh, know ourselves well enough so that when we have a, a problem, we don't just blame others. But we can say, we can, we can look and we can say, oh yeah, that, um, I know that pattern. You know, that pattern is when someone criticizes me, I get defensive or something, you know. And I can know that. And I can, you know, when I know that pattern well enough and I'm in a group, I don't have to instantly um, get defensive with someone, you know. And, and, and we can talk about it and there can be a certain maturity of the way we are with each other. So that's, uh, that's another way to look at it, that we can also uh, very much do our own work. And some things we have to do just, you know, we have to, you know, we have to do the work of... Um, Moving through our, our demons or moving through our difficult patterns, but if we often if we have friends and we have a certain connection with them, they can be very helpful. They, you know, and of course we know that, right? Probably we know they can be incredibly helpful for saying, um, you know, hopefully with some humor, there you go again, or there's that pattern again, or whatever. So I think that's actually uh, where this practice is evolving in this culture. I think we're gradually evolving a way that we do both the inner work and we also gradually come to be able to do the work with others at the same time. And that's hard because it demands a certain level of um, maturation. So I want to thank you for uh, listening to one of my favorite poems. And... um, exploring these uh, really powerful, wonderful issues together. And um, if you have further reflections, let me know. And I think I can be reached. I think the center has my contact information. Anyway, uh, maybe through... uh, Say through um, through Gill or through um, others. I could leave my email. I just wanted to remind everyone, or for those that are new, that our center and our speakers are um, supported uh, through Donna or the practice of generosity, and there are two boxes at the door that if you wanted to offer something, you can at that time. Thank you very much.
So let's just sit for about another minute or two and we'll do a closing. And the practice that we call uh, a dedication of merit. So letting be present, whatever was most helpful from the evening, be present to oneself now. Maybe from the trip over here or the sitting or the talk or discussion, what had most resonance with oneself? We can ask ourselves, are there any intentions that I take from this evening? Are there any intentions I want to bring into, um, into action, into actuality? And so in closing, we do a version of this practice called the Dedication of Merit, which is an old Asian practice that's typically done at the end of gatherings or retreats. And it's a chance that we offer what's been most valuable, the fruits of our time together, and we offer it to all beings. We offer it uh, for the benefit of all, and we can, we can use different language to communicate this. And I'll just give one very a brief way to close. So may we share the insights, the learning, the fruits of the evening. May we share those benefits very widely with all with whom we're in contact knowing that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but for all others. And we dedicate this evening to the healing and the awakening of wisdom and compassion in all beings. Thank you very much.